The EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast. I'm Toria Rainey, Program Assistant at BU's Center for the Study of Europe. Today is Thursday, December 3rd, and I am talking to Bruce Limesador, a current professor of European Asylum Law at Kafoskari University in Venice, about the emerging future in Europe. Okay. Uh, my name is Bruce Limesador, and I teach immigration and asylum law uh, at the State University in Italy, in Venice. Uh, uh, the university is called Cafoscari University, uh, the largest uh, state university in, in Venice. And uh, I've been teaching there for about uh, 11, 12 years. Before that, I worked for the United Nations High Commission on Refugees as a an asylum officer in in East Africa and, and, dealt, and dealt with East Africa, Central Africa, and the Horn of Africa. And before that, I worked for a long, long time uh, as the director in Vienna of the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, the Jewish Refugee Service, that handled the emigration of people coming out of the Soviet Union. Uh, but also, I began the pro the program for uh, the exodus of. Uh, of religious minorities out of Iran. Um, and so uh, it was not just the Russian issue. And I did that for about 25 years. Uh, and before that, I worked in New York for the same organization and was one of the uh, people who was drafted to help draft the Refugee Act of 1980 in the United States. Uh, so I go back a long time. Uh, I also was involved with the Marielle Cuban uh, uh, Cuban immigration into the United States in 1980. Mm -hmm. um, uh, basically, most of my adult life has been involved with refugees and migration. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. So I know that Elizabeth explained a little bit about the project, mm -hmm. um, and one tenet that we have been holding pretty close was Nicholas Lemon's association with democracy being unusual because it leaves open possibilities to future choice. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say is the role of choice in democracy, and do you think that it's effective in Europe? Uh, well, it's a, the whole question of choice in democracy in in both in the United States and in Europe right now, and that all depends upon levels of education and communication and questions of technology, uh, and we've seen that in fact. Um, the question of choice sometimes can get us into very, very difficult positions. Uh, the situation in the United States it was, has not, from my position and I think the position of many people, has not been particularly happy uh, in the last couple, in the last several weeks. And uh, the question of choice in Europe right now, we have uh, an election coming up in Austria on Sunday. We have another a plebiscite coming up in Italy on Sunday. Uh, and you have a lot of very critical uh, choices, uh, if you will, uh, where the situation may go very bad. Uh, and uh, a good deal of this is called, a good deal of the, the pressure on this is caused by, in Europe, is caused by migration issues. Uh, that is to say, uh, the, the choice that many people have, are, being ma are making really does depend upon their comfort 
with the situation of large numbers of non-Europeans coming in to Europe um, and basically staying for an indefinite length of time. So the, the whole issue of democracy, choice, and future becomes to a certain extent a bit tainted, if you will, because of this one drug one can't say you, you have to, you can't, you can't have a democratic situation. But in fact, if, if you're dealing with a, with a situation where uh, the population is under a great deal of pressure and there are also economic factors, but I think in Europe it's much more cultural factors than economic factors, these choices are going to be made in a very, very skewed fashion. In what way would you say that the citizens, I know that you mentioned that it's more cultural than economic, mm-hmm. um, in what way would you say that the citizens shape this idea of democracy and choice? What is the role that an average European citizen would play in making this idea of democracy appear the way it does? Um, I think, very frankly, a lot of it, a lot of it is a question of very, very, very manipulative, manipulated by a by events and by, in fact, by, by certain political parties and certain populist populist opinions. I really, right right now, especially looking at the situation in the United States, but also looking at the situation in Europe, where you have uh, a very great likelihood that um, far right uh, governments will be elected, will be chosen by the by, by the by the populace. And not only, and even if, in fact, not very, but extremely far-right governments, but also Euro, Euroskeptic, that is to say, governments which, which are nationalistic and no longer want to be, be part of the European Union, that want to, draw, to, to, to withdraw from the European Union. This is a, we're in a very, very dangerous crossroads right now. And the, to the, the extent to which the average European actually is making the choice and not being manipulated into a choice is, uh, uh, is very, very questionable. The question was whether, whether, in fact, the media is handling the situation in a responsible fashion, because the media, of course, wants to sell newspapers. They want to have, they have, a, they have, com- they have commercial interests in this type of situation. And thereby, the, 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 this all, in a sense, skews the question of choice. Uh, if you want to look at immigration itself, uh, for example, to give you an idea of how the media has handled the situation in, let's say, Italy, where I, where I worked part, part of the time, uh, several years ago under Mr. Berlusconi, who controlled a great deal of the media, the media was overtly xenophobic uh, and basically really did everything possible to to move the Italian populace in a in a in a xenophobic negative way in ter- in, ter- in terms of the immigration. This was basically a a, a a a function of the media being in the hands of a of the of a head of state, who was who was in fact irresponsible. I mean, remember, we didn't get rid of Mr. Berlusconi by choice. The European Union got rid of Mr. Berlusconi for us. If it were left to the Italian population, he would still be the Prime Minister. Um, so, uh, again, um, one doesn't really know. I mean, the whole question of, of, of how much choice really is 
a factor. And what is really determining, what is really moving the situation in Europe, it may not be, may not be the, the choice of the people. It may be, in fact, financial or, 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 uh, or, or commercial concerns, which is moving the, the, the choice of the people. Shifting a little bit from the idea that there's just an amalgamation of things that are really pushing forces to make citizens appear to have this illusion of choice, mm -hmm. what exactly would you say the EU's role is in that? I know that you talked a little bit about the mm -hmm. EU and the media. Um, what exactly do you think the EU in particular is doing? I think the EU right now, is, especially in terms of my field, in terms of my field of expertise, is simply on a, a type of very, very defensive uh, type of situation, trying to save itself uh, from, uh, from, from, from disillusion. Uh, the question of distributing refugees or immigrants throughout the European Union is basically has basically failed. No one really, anyone who knows about the situation knew that it wouldn't work in the first place. One even suspects that the people who voted for the pre-distribution program of the, of the, in the EU, EU knew very well that it wasn't going to work. The only thing one had to do is one had to present a program to the people. But again, I I won't go so far as to say it was fraudulent, but I have a feeling that in fact uh, uh, people pretty much knew that it was not going to go. The same situation to a certain extent with the with the situation now with with with, with the deal with Turkey. Uh, how long that's going to last? Uh, we're really up in the air. We really don't know how that's going how long that's going to last. It seems to it seems to have staunched the flow for a while. But what the media is not telling us is that Mr. Erdogan is letting more and more people through. Uh, uh, he is simply playing with the EU in terms of opening and closing the spigot little by little, and you better behave yourself, otherwise I'm going to open the whole business. Uh, so we're, we're basically hostage to him. Now, the, the media is not telling us that we're hostage to him. The EU is not telling, telling us that we're hostage to him, but we are, in fact, hostage to him. Where do you think the EU's governance is going in that case? Uh, I wish I knew. I really, <laughs> really wish I knew. Uh, very frankly, I think that, that basically, uh, regardless of who is, in fact, uh, the, this commissioner or that commissioner, the person, the the EU is really controlled by Germany at this point. And the Germans are really calling the shots. It's the most economically powerful country in Europe. It's the only country where there's a, a semblance of, of political stability. Uh, when one is relatively confident that, that Mrs. Merkel will in fact win, win a fourth term. Uh, uh, that can't be said for 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 Italy by, by any means, it's certainly up, if the situation in France is also very unstable right now. It may very well be that you have a Eurosceptic government. Marine Le Pen would like to pull France out of the European Union. Um, uh, the in Sweden, which used to be the, the the one of the most stable and let's say welcoming and solid. Uh, migration-friendly countries in Europe. Now the Sweden, the Sweden Democrats are, are the largest party in Sweden. Uh, so uh, the migration situation has caused a really a serious degree of instability throughout Europe, including Germany. 
but at least the Germans have, um, because of the Nazi period, the, the, the Nazi history, they, they will only go so far, I think, in terms of uh, um, going overboard in terms of far-right activity. On the other hand, the, the Austrians had a Nazi period too, and the Austrians are even richer than the Germans in terms of money, and Sunday they may very well elect a, a, a neo-Nazi president. Uh, I mean, he, I won't call him far right. He was basically in in one of the Burschenschaften. In the he 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 has a he has a neo-Nazi background. He's a charming, sweet, nice-looking man, but uh, uh, and has a very very nice demeanor. Uh, but uh, but he's a neo-Nazi. How would you how would you assess the borders, both nationally and on a, an EU front? Do you think that they're Effective? Do you think that there are things that are getting in the way? Perhaps maybe the sort of sense of nationality that's coming out, rather than a group mentality. Okay. One of the one of the most harmful situations of the current migration crisis was the uh, the closing of the Schengen borders. Um, uh, the Schengen borders are absolutely necessary for the survival of the European Union, both economically, because I mean, imagine if you're a truck driver and have to pick up something in Romania and deliver it in Spain, what you will have to go through. Uh, it really has already, because the closing of the, of the Schengen borders throughout the, the, the EU has already created a great deal of economic havoc in, ter in terms of this, and of course it will, get, it will get worse. I think even more important than that is it's, they are, they are physical symbols of, of unity or disunity. And if, in fact, the, border, the borders are closed, that is to say you have to go through a border check, it really means it emphasizes to people that Europe isn't one, that you are, not, that you are, you are really French and only French and maybe only tangentially European. Uh, when the borders are open, you are French and European. Uh, uh, and uh, listen, I... I, I told a class in Charlotte the other day when I was in, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, lecturing on, on migration affairs. I said, if I had to make a choice between the refugee program and the survival of the Euro European Union, European Union wins. European Union is absolutely vital. We, if, if, if it collapses, we are in really, really serious trouble, not just economically. We're in serious trouble intellectually. We're in serious trouble legally and, and 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 humanitarianly i think it's i think it's basically the, the the future of europe if europe has a future the future of europe is in the european union what effects do you think that would have culturally uh, well basically national well it's a question of chicken and egg if the european union dissolves it basically would would even makes make nationalism even more more of a of an issue, if but basically it is in fact the nationalism which is eating away at the foundations of the European Union. Um, I mean, the European Union has been, if you live in Europe, you're you're, and especially depending upon where you live in Europe, you are um, much more aware of cultural differences between uh, between European countries depending upon where you live. If you live, if you live in the Benelux 
area if you live up near you know we're in northeast france and on the german border and and near holland and near in luxembourg basically you cross borders and you're not even aware of which country you're in uh uh in southern europe you cross over from france into italy you know that you're in italy you know that you're no longer in france uh same situation even in terms of austria and austria and italy which which the it, the the border area in Italy was is ethnically Austrian. They still they still speak German. In other areas in Europe, the 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 cult the cultural amalgam is much much more effective. Uh, I mean, frankly, in my classes in Italy, I always have Erasmus students. Uh, the students in the European Union and student exchange programs. So, other than other than the issue of nationalism, the issue of um, you know, just the borders being kind of problematic. Do you see as a hardcore forming around the Eurozone? Or would you see something that's more like differentiated integration? And if you do see a hardcore, how would you permeate that? I mean, a, hard, a hardcore against the, the, I mean, basically people, everyone flying off in their own, their own direction. Unfortunately, I see that. Unfortunately, I do. I, I do see that. I mean, I, uh, um, I am very worried about what's going to happen in France. I am very worried about what's going to happen in, 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 in Austria, and I'm very worried about what's going to happen in Italy. The Italians won't. The Italians won't want to drop out of the eurozone. They won't want drop out of the about of the European Union, but they will want to drop out of the eurozone. Um, and uh, well. If you listen to Paul Krugman, who I basically agree with in a lot of senses, the euro was a mistake to begin with. Uh, that it was, it was, it was, it re- depended upon a, re- a degree of European integration, economic and social integration that wasn't there yet, and uh, we jumped into it with the hope that it would push it into that direction, and it obviously hasn't really. And so that you have. The perennial problems. I mean, Greece is only one of the. Greece is only the worst one, uh, but but you have you have always some other country too, which is creating a, where the euro is creating a very serious situation, serious serious, serious problem. So that um, uh, there is, there is the question of the euro, but also the question of the European Union in and of itself. If it, basically it is a possibility that that Brexit is only the beginning. Uh, and that you'll have a Frexit, and you'll have a whatever the Austrians want to call <laughs> their 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 exit. And uh, I think the Italians will resist leaving, uh, but they'll try to get rid of the euro. But once once France leaves, it's over. I mean, basically, the European Union depends upon the Union of France and Germany. Uh, I mean. It could have said the reunion of France, Germany, and Britain, but now Britain isn't there. You want me to try to say something positive? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if, if in a perfect world, what would you like to see emerge from the European future? Well, uh, Idealistically. <laughs> okay. Give, if, we're going to, if we're going to factor in a steady and very, very heavy migration into the European Union or into, the, in, into Europe from, from, from areas which are not 
not in Europe. I think we'd have to, it has to, in order to, to move forward, one has to make a very, very clear distinction between the ref, real refugees under the existing refugee uh, uh, instruments, the Geneva Convention of 1951, and the and, and the two or three other in, uh, refugee instruments which allow for war refugees to to receive refugee status. Uh, one has to make a distinction between them and people who are migrating economically, or economic migrants. Uh, and that distinction has really been very, very blurred, and it's been blurred not only by um, refugee advocates. It's been blurred also by the NGOs. It's been blurred even by the UNHCR, uh, which is whose whose job is not to blur it, whose job is to define it. Uh, but the UNHCR will say, oh, there are 60, 000, 60 million refugees in the world. Nonsense. These people have never been interviewed. These people, we don't know what their what, what their what 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 their what their case is. If you talk about they're they're what's called prima facie refugees because they come from places which generally produce some sort some sort of refugee, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're really refugees. And a large percentage of them are economic migrants. Uh, if you wish, you can talk about the Syrians, and look, there are large amounts numbers of Syrians who are victims of persecution, that is to say, they would be refugees under the Geneva Convention. But there are also others who are, are fleeing from generalized violence. But if you if you want to interpret the, the, the laws on generalized violence in their most, let's say, in, in, in their original form, that means that you have, you're fleeing from imminent danger, that imminent physical danger, that is to say, you get involved in the crossfire of two armies, or someone's dropping a bomb on your on your head. If, on the other hand, you're fleeing because the infrastructure of your country has been economic infrastructure has been destroyed, that doesn't make you a refugee. Uh, if you if you if your shop goes broke because you can't get supplies, or no one can no one can afford to 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 buy from you, and you and you close your doors and you leave for Turkey and then for Greece, you're not a refugee. Uh, and going back to the whole question of the media and the media's role in making the situation um, a blurry, if you recall, a couple of years ago there was the famous, famous photograph of the young boy who washed up on the on the shores of uh, of Turkey, and this is the archetypical refugee, right? The father was a barber in Damascus. He couldn't make it as a barber in Damascus, and he moved to Kobane. He in Kobane before ISIS came in, he tried to operate as a barber. There wasn't enough clientele. He went into Turkey. His sister was a, had status in, in, in Canada, tried to, to arrange for refugee status for him in Canada. The Canadians turned him down because basically he was, he left, he, he came into Turkey because of the economic situation. He crosses the Aegean. His family drowns. He arrives in Greece himself and then he decides to go back to Turkey, to, to not to Turkey even. He goes back to he goes back to Syria. Knows this this archetypical refugee case is a pure and simple economic migrant. No, not not one. It's not even a borderline case. And this is what the the press has the the media has fostered upon the. Uh, 
population. And very frankly, look, these are people of maybe even immense humanitarian concern. Humanitarian concern and refugee status are two very, very different things. And very, very frankly, I think I have faith that if in fact we had people who are really refugees, refugees really under the convention or refugees other uh, under extensions for, for war refugees, the, the, this reception in Europe would be very, very different. The repercussions in terms of uh, the political picture in Europe would be very, very different and even much more positive. I think that the Willkommenskultur in Germany would have lasted much, much longer had it not been discovered that a large number of these people really are just, are just economic, economic migrants. So, and, and, the, and the Germans became, had the feeling of betrayal. Uh, also, very frankly, the economic migrants are pushing the price of the traffickers up and up and up and up, and they're crowding the boats. The people who are drowning in the Mediterranean are drowning also because the boats are overloaded with economic migrants. Uh, uh, a division has to be made, and people ha and and the media has to be very very clear on what's going on, on what's going on. Um, one can also argue we need the economic migrants too. Fine, but it's a different program. We do it in a different way. We have different selection criteria, and but for people who actually are in danger of persecution or danger of losing their lives or their health because of generalized violence, those people must be protected. And I think the European, European peoples, American people, even Mr. Trump probably, is willing to protect those people. Uh, it's all of the rest, which is, which is fogging the waters, so fog, fogging the air, so to speak. Uh, and I think that the, if you're looking for a positive possible solution, I would say really clamp down, become as, become as strict in the situation as possible. Unfortunately, this is not happening. Exactly the opposite is happening. In Germany, because they're so backed up in terms of the, the app number of applications, they're accepting applications for Syrians without even interview. Uh, so the, we don't even know who these people are who we're giving refugee status to. Uh, it's a time bomb. It's a time bomb politically. It's a time bomb in terms of uh, in terms of security. Uh, uh, it's a very very dangerous situation. The Germans have no choice. So when you have a half a million cases backed up, uh, either you do it like that, or if you give the people a normal uh, refugee status determination, it'll put the waiting time up to maybe two three years. Not, not what it costs, because what it costs, the money gets recycled back into the economy anyway. It's the violence that will happen in the camps. And the, these people, this is a very, very, very violence-prone migration also. And basically what you'll have is a lot of violence, especially against women. I mean, it hasn't been publicized, the amount of violence against women that are going on in the holding camps in, 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 in Germany uh, and in other places. Um, and uh, it will it'll explode that way. So it, they, there's, the Germans are between, in a, in between a rock and a hard place in terms of this. But, but neither one of them are leading, leading us to making a clear-cut distinction between economic, mi economic migration and, 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 and asylum, which is the one that has to be made.
Let me just add one more thing. The UNHCR, basically, is not helping in terms of this. The UNHCR public relations people will tell you that all of the Syrians, everyone, everyone coming into to Europe, they're all refugees and they all should be accepted as, refu as refugees. If you speak to the protection department of the UNHCR, they say, well, of course they're not. And it's, why didn't the UNHCR, even before the people started pouring into Europe, UNHCR has a resettlement program where they can pick people out of uh, tense situations and bring them to other countries uh, and uh, other and safe countries. There was never a resettlement program in any dimension for the Syrians because the UNHCR knows these people don't qualify. A large percentage of these people don't qualify because basically they're economic migrants and they're not necessarily refugees. Okay, so, I know that you spoke a little bit about kind of how to make that distinction and how the media should react to it. Mm -hmm. If you had the opportunity to speak to the European citizens as one stage, what would your call to arms for an average European citizen be to realize that distinction, and what would you hope that they would do going forward? I mean, I suppose the only thing I can say to the average European citizen is the problem is not a refugee problem. The problem is a migration problem and dealing with the migration situation. If I have perfect faith in all of you Europeans, that, listen, we had refugee situations in Europe. A lot of us have refugee families and things of that, and, 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 and have connections to the refugee phenomenon. No one is really going to shut the doors on people who are really fleeing persecution or fleeing for their lives. Uh, the tension is where people are being told that that's the case, and everyone knows that it's not true. Uh, and uh, because of that, the people who are actually paying the price are the real refugees. Uh, but as I say, if I'm getting up and telling the European, the citizens of the European Union something, I would say to them, look, don't blame the refugees. The refugees are as much victims of this situation as you are. Uh, basically, the situation is that the economic migration has to be, has to be taken, care, taken care of. Uh, how to take care of the economic migration, if you would like me to go into that, I can. <laughs> I can. I mean, one thing which, in fact, has begun to, be, to, to happen is the European Union is putting more and more pressure upon the countries of origin of the economic migrants to take them back. Because last 2014, only 40% of those people who refused asylum when they actually got to the asylum adjudication. And of course, this is not including the people who were just shunted through because it was just, they had no choice. But the 40% hardcore of the people, no, of people who actually were refused asylum, only 40% got sent back home. Uh, the rest, look, what happens? Uh, first of all, you have to go through an asylum procedure. The asylum procedure takes six or seven months. After that, if you get turned down, then you have a right to appeal. And, and I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm saying that this is, this is what is involved. You have a right to appeal. Once your appeals are exhausted, then the country decides whether they're going to try to repatriate you or just give up. Uh, sometimes they just give up because it is so difficult to repatriate the people because the countries don't want to take them back. And they don't want to take them back because it's better to have people here illegally 
uh, or in, in, Europe, in Europe illegally working, sending money back to their families than to, to, to have to try to reintegrate them back and back. So you have to convince the countries to, to, to take them back. Once you do, you're talking about, you're talking about a, pr- a process from the beginning to the end, which is about two and a half, three years for each individual case. Okay. Uh, this is, a, this is a, a fairly, fairly difficult situation. On the other hand, I would be the last person to recommend expediting uh, uh, repatriation, that is to say, just shove them, onto, shove them onto planes and send them home. No, really not. I mean, basically, I'm interested in saving the, the, the asylum procedure. If I'm interested in saving the asylum procedure, that is the worst thing that one can do. Uh, uh, basically, it's, what you have to, the only other way of dealing with it is to deal with the countries of origin, making, giving them more and more incentives to discourage economic migration, and simply paying them off doesn't work. Um, uh, I think what has, the incentives have to be basically carrots and sticks. That is to say, if you don't discourage economic migration, we in fact not only will cut aid to you, we'll also will we'll also imply will also uh, have sanctions against you. I mean, uh, if you're not taking the people back, if you're not facilitating our our repatriation programs, then in fact we we will not only not give you foreign aid, we will also uh, make, make problems for you in terms of trade relations, in terms of other situations. Uh, in other words, we have to really put the screws to the countries of origin to take these people back. Um, and that's about the only thing I can, th- I can, th- I can think of. Uh, and not only take the people back, but also have programs in the countries of origin saying, look, because we are now really doing adjudications in a detailed and strict way. If you can risk your life to cross the Mediterranean, risk your life to cross the Aegean, you're going to be sent back home anyway. Don't do it. Don't come. Eventually it may sink through. That's I'm not I'm not I'm not saying this is this is this is a this is a magic this is a uh, a magic solution. I'm saying that this is the probably the only way I can think of that's really going to would really help. Anything else? There's anything else you'd like to add? No, that's about. Is this pretty much what you wanted? Absolutely. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. All right. I tried to give you even a positive end. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time. That's fine. Fine. been listening to the EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C. 